Welcome to Third Man Walking. Today I'll be joined by Yale Greenfield, who you might remember from the ninth episode of this podcast entitled Poker in Quarantine. Yale is one of my best friends in poker. He's also really good at identifying trends in poker. So I hope you'll enjoy our interview. As we'll discuss, Yale also has a new vlog entitled Live King Poker. It's really good. I hope you'll check it out. I will put a link in the show notes. So here is my interview with Yale Greenfield. Yale, welcome back to Third Man Walking. Thanks again for having me. I'm excited to be back chatting with you. So last time we spoke, it was last year during quarantine, last time we spoke for the podcast anyway. Where has poker taken you since then? Well, I've sort of been uh, all over the place, really. I had talked to you about considering my options, where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do, even if I wanted to keep playing poker. And uh, of course, which is been a theme for me the last seven years or so I, I am still playing poker and, and quite frequently i've been traveling quite a bit mostly because i think the lockdown of covid and the choices that i made during that time most specifically to to not really play live and and online games drying up i just really wanted to get out of ohio explore new things and just really live again. I, I did. I just felt like I wanted to live. And to me at that, at that moment, living meant traveling, seeing people, seeing things and getting out regardless of, of costs that I would incur on the road, getting out in and trying out new places to play. Do you feel like the time you spent in quarantine helped make you better at poker? And if so, how? Well, specifically, I played a lot of tournament volume during quarantine because I thought they were the best games. So I think that has translated very much here in Vegas in that I've become more familiarized with the different spots in tournaments. And as someone who hasn't spent a lot of time studying tournaments, getting in that volume, getting in those spots, running them by people that I trust, looking at them uh, in databases and and reviewing uh, has has really aided me in in at least being more comfortable in the tournaments that I'm playing out here in Vegas. With regard to cash games, you know, I did spend more time studying than I normally would during quarantine because there was less to do, and I took that opportunity at points when I wasn't feeling sad or annoyed about the situation of being stuck inside to 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 brush up on a lot of a lot of cash game spots and some of my friends helped me during those times to learn how to study and be smarter and more strategic with that study and yes i then put that stuff to work once i got out of of my apartment and in back into live cash and yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it, I feel like I squandered, uh, you know, a lot of time, like a lot of us probably feel during COVID. It's like, you know, we had all this time to do anything we want and explore anything we want, but the, the, the sheer magnitude of the situation 
you know, mentally for, for many of us, including myself, was just so difficult that, you know, striving every day to get better at something, whatever it is for anybody, you know, getting in shape, studying poker or anything for whoever out there, it was not always easy to do. But I, I would say that, yes, I have improved. And a goal of mine is to always be improving. And I use my friends who are better than me as a, you know, a, a way, you know, chatting with them, talking with them, studying a little bit off the table, and then mostly learning from them as my main aid into improving my game. I just know that I don't know everything and I know so very little and I'm always trying to get better. I can't be showing up to the casino 150, 160 hours a month without constantly working at getting better. It would be just a complete disservice to myself. So, yeah, I would say that, you know, COVID quarantine was helpful in me getting better at poker. So if I have this right, since then, you've been playing in Arizona, Los Angeles and Las Vegas without getting into too many details about which place is the best to play poker. What have been the major differences between those markets? Well, the first big difference is when you play in Arizona, their game structure is unlike any other any other place you can play in that they have a state law that allows for a $600 max bet. So they spread some really, really big limit games there, uh, which is cool for people who enjoy limit games. I don't know all the mixes. You'll see sometimes as high as 150, 300 or 200, 400 running. On the no limit side, the $600 max bet really makes it such that 510 no limit is, is really the biggest game you can run that still sort of feels like a no limit game. If you try to spread a 1020, which I've heard has happened before, but it's not really a thing there. It, you would get to the 600 cap so quickly, it would basically be a bona fide limit game. And uh, at times in this 510 game, and even in the 2-5 game, if the pot gets really big free with like some 3-betting or 4-betting, you do see the $600 max bet come into play. And, and the best way I can explain it is the way the $600 bet works is if you bet 100, I can make it 600 more for a total of 700. And if you want to raise me, you can make it 1300. So the game kind of turns into a bona fide limit game. And if I call your 1300 on the very next street, the biggest bet I can make when the action's on me is once again 600. So the pot could be 2400 or 3000 or whatever, but the largest bet I can make is 600 and then you can raise in $600 increments. It's not going to come into play a ton, but it does come into play in the 510 no limit game. With regard to other places, you know, much like you, I, and I listen to your last po podcast, I am not a Vegas fan at all. It is a very grindy, pro-heavy, not super enjoyable place from my perspective to play poker. Vegas has a mystique, and the mystique is very well warranted. You know, beautiful properties like Wynn Encore, Resorts World, 
even Bellagio, as old as it is, I still think is a really cool property. Aria, you walk into those places, not that we should care, but, you know, they serve you Fiji waters and top end liquor in the poker rooms should you want to indulge in that. And everything's really clean and really nice. And it's very different than anywhere else that I've ever played poker, which I don't want to say if it's more grungy or grimy, but, you know, you look at the Aria versus the Commerce in L.A., and, and they're not exactly a comp aesthetically. That said, I would rather play at the Commerce, uh, you know, eight days a week and twice on Sunday. Like, it's just it's just a way better place to play poker for a lot of reasons. And I guess the last place that I'd hit on is L.A., and I love L.A., um, I like that I have friends there like you, uh, amongst others. I like the people that are in the games better. I like the mixture of cultures, which you also get in Vegas. So I, I can't dispute that, but I really like the vibe and the feel of LA. I like, I like the attitude of the players. The attitude that they have is, is fun. It's it's a good gambling environment. Whereas the attitude that the Vegas players bring, uh, the, the people who both live there play for a living and the people who travel in to play the WSOP, I don't enjoy them. I don't enjoy their presence. I don't enjoy their, their table personality. Uh, as far as the way that they play, I mean, you know, that is what it is, whether someone's very, very good or not good. I mean, we don't control that and I don't worry about that, but it just LA has a great vibe and I haven't been to Texas and I heard the vibe in Texas is amazing as well, but I haven't been there. So I can't speak to it for all that though. You didn't actually do all that well in LA while you were here, right? No, I really didn't. Uh, the games were really, really good. You kind of had that for people who don't know the, the COVID, post-COVID live games were, they were like a throwback to like 2005 or 2008 or 2009, any of those time periods during the poker boom when games were so good and uh, the ability to be profitable at, at very, very high win rates for the people who who were better, whether it be pros or good racks or anything there was just so much money to be made in these COVID games or these, these post COVID games, depending on how you look at it, uh, you know, and I guess that would include outdoor games in LA, which I didn't play that they had during COVID. And, you know, some people were starting to get vaccinated, some different things like that. Um, these games were really, really good. And no, I, I really struggled Number one, I, I think I, I struggled in adjustments to the L.A. pool. That was the longest sustained time. I played for six weeks in L.A. That's the longest time I've ever played in L.A. straight. I also played the highest stakes consistently that I've ever played, which was pretty much 5, 10, 20 every single day. I did not play any 5, 5, which is going to be the other option in L.A. They, they run 5, 5 with varying caps of 500 to 1000 dollars. I, and when I say I didn't play any, I mean, I, I played several hours at best over the 150 odd hours I played. I probably played more than 150 hours. I'd have to go back and look in L.A. So, you know, I talk about this a lot. I, I kind of 
active act. I use the, I use this time to condition myself and I liken it to, to what we do in high school when we play a sport, you know, you go out for the soccer team or the football team and you show up to the first practice and the coach says, you know, we're going to do conditioning before we get into working on plays uh, or learn, you know, learning the playbook and actually throwing the football. We got to get in shape. And I was trying to mentally get myself in shape for these games is, is the way I look at it. And it is, it is a skill and it's a new experience. And the way people play in LA is so different than what I've experienced throughout my career as a professional poker player. And I'm sure, I mean, I know that I made tons of mistakes. I also know that I ran really bad. Well, I believe that anyway. I mean, I guess we never really know exactly. And the combination of the two is brutal. Kind of reminds me of a little bit of when I talked to you last time about adjusting to online app games and, and just you get into these new environments and it's not uncommon to make mistakes and these mistakes are really costly. And, and when I look back on it, you know, it's funny. We, we talked about in that last podcast about how our guess was that COVID games, especially early COVID games would have players who would be reckless and that the games would probably be really good for a variety of reasons. And it turns out that was completely true, not necessarily for all the reasons that we thought, but maybe, and, but maybe also for a lot of the reasons we thought, and it's tough to say, cause you don't know exactly why, but any pro that I've talked to anybody that I trust, who I respect, everybody's in firm agreement that those were some of the best games we've ever seen. And, and just to, to more directly answer your question, yeah, I didn't run good. I didn't do well results wise. I mean, I did okay. I didn't like, I didn't lose my ass, but for the size games I was playing and everything else, it didn't go well. You were talking about these COVID games in past tense and su suggesting, I guess, that, that, that time is past and I guess I feel it sort of passing now. I can feel the games changing from week to week into something a little bit less reckless, a little bit more grindy. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, it is. And I think what that is specifically, I mean, I have a lot of theories about this, which again, could be completely incorrect, but part of what made those COVID games so great again, was a reference that I talked about where all these people who hadn't played poker in years were getting reinvigorated by poker. They literally were sitting at home playing in app games, getting reacquainted with the game. Also, the biggest factor that we might not have acknowledged before, which seems to be clear now is that as the data has come out about savings rates, nobody spent money for a year. You, you, you almost couldn't. And a lot of the very affluent socked away more money than they ever have. And they also made more money in the stock market than they ever had. And they made more money in Bitcoin. And there's just really no other way to say it. As I understand it, not that I'm an economist or an expert, but it does seem quite logical. The rich got significantly richer during COVID and post COVID, and they saved a ton of money. And we know the way the ecosystem works in poker. A lot of very, very successful people 
who are very smart and very good at business play bigger games. People like you and I, we don't play the top stakes, but we play reasonably high. And those are the types of people that we're looking to play with. And they had an abundance of money and probably still do. But thing is about poker is that, you know, when you show up and get kicked in the face every day for months at a time or, or your heat wears off, maybe you came in, caught a little bit of heat, we're doing okay, treading water. Eventually, the way poker works, because, they're, because yes, luck is a huge factor, but skill uh, over time takes over. Uh, and of course, there's rake involved, but forget about rake for now, which is a very important thing. But skill is, is going to win out, and eventually, people kind of get sick a lot of the time of getting their head bashed in, and they're going to go do something else, which has been a huge problem in poker forever and will continue to be going forward. So now you're back in Las Vegas and you've been playing some tournaments. What tournaments have you played in the past month and what has stood out about them? So I usually have a, a plan when I come to Vegas to primarily do what I always do, which is play cash games. I am a cash game grinder, professional, whatever you want to call it. I try to stay in my lane and not get too hyped up about tournaments. But of course, during WSOP, there is some really high value stuff. And even though I can readily admit that I don't put in the proper amount of work into getting better at tournaments, I've studied them a little bit in the past and I can use some strategy that I think is translatable from cash games into tournaments to a point that I do think is helpful. I have played, my goal is always to play when I feel good. So my goal is to play one a week, and it's always going to be, in effect, a weekend, what I call a shit show event. So the tournaments that I've played so far were the Reunion, formerly called the Big 50. It's a $500 buy-in. It got 12,975 entrants. I then played the Millionaire Maker, a $1,500 buy-in the following weekend. I don't remember how many people it got. I want to say 5,000 and change. I then played the Monster Stack the following weekend. Uh, it got around, I want to say around 4,000, but I can't remember. And then I played the Double Stack, which is a $1,000 buy-in. And it's actually a really good structure. It's a better structure than the Millionaire Maker at a $1,500 price point and a slightly worse structure than the Monster Stack, which is also at a $1,500 price point. So for anybody who's out there wondering what's a great event to play, where can I really get value for my money and get a lot of deep play in a WSOP tournament, I think the 1K Double Stack is literally the best tournament you can play if you care about depth and structure and quality for the price. The reunion is 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 way more of a turbo event, and it's set up to be like that. But monster stack, double stack, very deep for fifteen hundred or less. I would highly recommend it to anybody who wants to come out to Vegas and and really, you know, get their money's worth, be entertained, or just likes a good structured tournament. Last time you were on the show, you didn't have anything to promote, but. Now you do. So tell us about your new vlog, Live King Poker. 
my vlog editor, producer, director, Jamie, who is a longtime L.A. Poker Pro reg, has been telling me for years that I should do a vlog. And, and my buddy Thatcher had also said for years now, we used to try to tell him he should do a vlog because he's, he's funny and got a good personality. But they've been telling me, oh, I should do it. And I said, I don't want to show people how I play. I don't really want to get involved in all that. I don't have the the technical skill. And I saw the way vlogs have really blown up. And I'm yeah, I'm a little late to the party probably. But I was talking about it with people I knew. Like, this is crazy. There's just so much engagement here. And there's all these guys playing, not begrudging them, but super small stakes and kind of eh, production and – you know, I mentioned to Jamie and Jamie says, he said, I'll edit your vlog and, you know, be your producer and your director if you want to do it. So we decided to team up and make vlogs. And our goal is, look, you know, we don't know where it's going and we don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the success level is going to be of this thing. But, you know, it was originally at the time of and we're going to play a little higher stakes than a lot of the vloggers when you look at the vloggers in totality which kind of isn't exactly holding now because Brad Owen is like suddenly playing bleeds. And so is Mariano guys just have made a lot of money off YouTube that has kind of propelled them into higher stakes. And, and they probably made money playing poker as well, certainly. And their channels are super successful and I'm getting a little bit sidetracked here, but uh, we were going to show a little, you know, a little bit higher stakes than the average vlog. It's invigorating and it's invigorating because Poker, to me, is a really lonely existence and a really lonely place. It's part of the reason I've wanted to get out for so long. It's just it's just really not it's really not the setup that I'd love to have as a career if i if I had to pick anything I could do. I'm very extroverted. Uh, I think I'm cerebral, but not to the degree of of where of where you really need to be to play the top 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 stakes. I think if I'm just being realistic, those are the facts. And the vlog allows me to tap other parts of my personality, my skill set, and just try something new. I, I, I talk about this a lot. Like I, I don't, a lot of people my age bracket have kids and other things like that. I don't really have anything per se to, to point to as – you know, you, Charlie has a, Charlie has a band. I don't even know if people listen to this podcast know that. And you not only does he make the podcast, he make you know, you make music and I don't really have those types of outlets. And my feeling was that this is an outlet that I might maybe be able to excel in and enjoy. And it's also got a lot of engagement and sharing myself with the greater world. And the, or if not the greater world, the greater poker community who does watch vlogs sounds good to me. I, I like that. I like the idea of that I, 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 I can be harsh with people. I can be tough sometimes. A lot of people who know me know that, but I really by and large really like people. I enjoy interacting. And I think the vlog, if it gets successful, could be a great way to do more of that. Yale, uh, good luck with Live King Poker. I'll put a link in the show notes. And good luck at the tables. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was uh, really fun again. And 
I uh, look forward to doing it again in the future. It is Halloween 2021, but these hands you're about to hear come from a 510-20 session I played two days ago. I talked a couple episodes ago about playing what I called a Tim Duncan style of poker in which I make the right value bets, play fundamentally sound, uh, but don't have a lot of flash or excitement in my game. And I think in the past month or so, I've moved away from that a little bit, which I said I was trying to do. It hasn't necessarily made a big difference in my win rate, but the hands I've gotten to play have definitely been a bit more exciting. And this session was definitely of the more exciting variety. In this first hand, there's one limp. I have ace 10 of clubs in the low jack and raise to $90. The button calls and so does the limper. So there's about $300 in the pot. Again, I have ace 10 of clubs and the flop comes 966 with two diamonds. Checks to me, I check three ways with not much going on here and the button checks back. So there's still $300 in the pot and the turn is an offsuit 10. So I now have top pair, top kicker. The limper leads for $300 full pot. Not necessarily what I want to see, but this is a sizing that this player will use a lot. So I call the button now goes all in for about $1,200. The player who bet $300 fortunately gets out of the way. And I can't really think of a reason the button would be ahead of me at this point. Maybe he had 8-7 and didn't choose to bet the flop after it got checked to him. But it's pretty hard to believe he would have a 6 here. Maybe he could have pocket 9s that he slow played. But I think I'm just ahead here most of the time. So I do make the call and end up beating Queen-10 offsuit. So we both pick up top pair on the turn, but my top pair is better and I win a pretty chunky pot. In this next hand, the first two blinds complete and keep in mind here again that this is a three blind game, 5, 10, 20. So the first two blinds complete, I raise to $110 in the straddle with ace jack with no hearts and both players call. So there's about 325 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes jack 10-7 with the jack and 10 of hearts. The first blind checks, and the second blind, who is the guy who bet 300 into 300 in the previous hand, bets 300 again, this time 300 into 325. This is a spot I'm a little bit wary of um, because my hand so rarely improves and I can be drawing pretty much dead to 9-8 or a set here, but with top pair, top kicker, no choice but to call. So I do call and the first blind calls as well. So there's 1225 in the pot heading to the turn, which is one of the few cards that really helps me. It's an offsuit ace. So jack 10, seven ace, and I have ace jack. After both players checked me, I'm feeling pretty good about this situation. King queen did get there. And of course I'm still behind some of the hands I was behind on the flop, but I now do beat all the flop two pairs and my hand is pretty strong here for the situation. So I bet 700 into 1225 and both players fold. So in the next significant hand of the night, 
I have six five of hearts on the button and raised to 60 and the small blind calls. Now, this is a player I have played with a lot and a player who I'm going to play a bunch of hands with in this session. He plays quite passively pre-flop. So in this particular spot where I'm on the button and he's in the small blind, it wouldn't shock me at all if he called instead of three betting with hands like ace queen pocket tens really strong hands that are especially strong for the situation he's thoughtful uh and can read hands but is also pretty passive after the flop he also uh has a fold button and there was a hand i described from the 10 20 40 session a couple of podcast episodes ago where the board was something like jack five four ace 10 and I had a set of jacks and shoved on the river and he folded ace jack face up. So I know he's capable of making some folds. So anyway, I have six, five on the button raised to 60 and the small blind calls. So there's 145 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes queen jack 10 with the queen of hearts. So he checks. And although I think this player can have an unusual number of pretty strong hands in this spot, more than most players would have because of how rarely he three bets. I'm just doing really well on this board. I have every combination of ace-king. I have pretty much every other straight and set you could name. And the, the fact that the board can change a lot on the turn is a benefit to me because I'm in position. So I think I can see bet a decent frequency, and I think those bets should be on the larger side. So I do decide to bet this time. I make it 100 into 145, and he makes the call. So now there's 345 in the pot heading to the turn, which is the three of hearts. So I now pick up a flush draw. He checks again, and I think, okay, I mean, I've picked up some equity. My hand is still just six high. And so I think I need to go for it here. And because he didn't raise me on the flop, I can mostly rule out straights from his range. And again, I just retain all these strong hands, all kinds of straights, ace, king, nine, eight, king, nine, plus all the sets and two pairs. So I think that when I bet here, I should be betting quite big. So I do bet 450 into 345, uh, about 1.3 X pot and my opponent folds. I did run this through a solver later and found that my sizings were good or relatively good throughout the hand, but that uh, my betting the turn was a little bit out of line, that if I'm betting a hand as weak as six, five of hearts here, I'm just probably betting a little bit too much. But it works out for me this time as the overbet gets through. In this next hand, the hijack raises to $60. The cutoff, who is the same villain from the last hand, calls. The button calls, the big blind calls, and it gets to me in the straddle with, again, ace 10 of clubs. So I think that I can either re-raise or call in this situation. And I checked with a couple of my poker friends. Uh, one said that he would always three bet here. One said that he would absolutely not always three bet here. So it's just one of those pre-flop squeeze spots against a bunch of opponents where nobody really knows the answer. But I think it's pretty close between three betting and 
just calling. And I happened to call this time. And one reason I did was because the player in the cutoff, who is, again, the villain from the previous hand, can have some pretty strong hands here. Hands as strong as, you know, ace-king, queens, hands like that. And that tilts me in the direction of wanting to keep the pot small until I can see more. So I do make the call. There's about $300 in the pot. Again, I have ace-ten of clubs, and the flop comes king-jack-nine with the king and nine of clubs. So I have the nut flush draw to go with a gutter to a queen. It checks to the preflop raiser who bets $120, and I don't think this sizing indicates great strength from him. The cutoff, who is the uh, passive thinking player, calls. The big blind calls, and now it's on me. So I think it's very unlikely due to the better's bet sizing and the fact that the other two players just called that any player in this sequence has queen 10, which would be the nuts here. And I have tons and tons of equity. So I decide to raise to $800. The preflop raiser folds and now it gets back to the cutoff who is the passive thinking player who makes the call. The other player folds. So now there's... Uh, about 2140 in the pot heading to the turn and it's an offsuit eight so now king jack nine eight with two clubs and again i have ace ten of clubs so i've picked up an open-ended straight draw so in addition to a queen i can make a straight here on a seven so i have about 3800 behind at this point and I think with any bet sizing I would use, I would pretty much have to call off with a hand with this much equity if my opponent were to go all in. Not that I think that's super likely. So I think the best thing to do to put pressure on a lot of his range is to go all in. Like I said, I don't think he has queen 10. I don't think he has pocket kings either because I think even he would three bet that preflop. I think he has a lot of two pair type hands. But we've seen from past experience with this player that he's willing to fold two pair against a ton of aggression. So that leaves, you know, pocket nines. I think he could have that. I think this player could have pocket jacks as well. And maybe he would call me with king jack. But uh, I think that in general, he has a lot of two pair hands. He has a lot of hands also that have uh, like a pair plus a straight draw, such as king queen queen-jack, jack-10, hands like that. Maybe not every combination of all those hands, but at least some of those. So I think if I go all in here, it's going to get a lot of folds. And even if I get called, I'm not doing that badly against anything with a draw this big. So I do go all in for 3,800 into about 2,100. And my opponent does make the call and the river is an offsuit deuce. So I brick, he shows pocket jacks for a flopped middle set and takes it down and I get stacked. At one point, uh, about an hour after this, I'm down about $5,000 for the day. Not where you wanna be, um, but I keep on fighting. And these next two hands went in quick succession and had unusual preflop configuration. So it's possible I'm off by a position or something somewhere, but this is basically what happened. So in this next hand, there's a straddle to 40 from the small blind. So you can straddle from any position in this game. And this guy is straddling from the small blind because he's effectively buying the button. Uh, so he straddles to 40 and there's not gonna be any other blinds in this hand. The player in the big blind position just calls the 40. The low jack raises to $225. 
the hijack calls and I have pocket Kings in the cutoff and uh, about $4,000 in my stack. So obviously with Kings, I'm going to be re-raising. Uh, I don't think I need to make it especially big because my stack is not terribly deep for this exact situation. And I have a really strong hand. So I just raised to $900. It folds around to the original raiser who folds. And now the prefab caller, uh, the guy who just called the 225 makes the call. So we're going heads up to a flop here with about 2,100 already in there. And it comes queen seven, five rainbow. Again, I've got pocket Kings. My opponent checks, I bet $800 and he calls. So now 3,700 in the pot heading to the turn, which is a three creating a backdoor spade draw. And he donks all in for my last $3,000 or so. I make the call with pocket Kings and my opponent says, you're good before the river even comes. The river is actually an offsuit King. So I make top set, but I assume I didn't need that. I table my hand and get the double up. So I'm not quite back to where I was before getting stacked with the ACE 10 of clubs, but this helps quite a lot. So just a few minutes later, the low Jack raises to $80, the button calls, and I have ACE King with no diamonds in the big blind and raised to $420. The straddle who is the passive thinking player who I've been battling with cold calls, which is a little bit concerning given how little he three bets. The low Jack also calls and the button calls. So we're going four ways to a flop here in a three bet pot. There's 1680 already in there and the flop comes ACE 10 four with the ACE and 10 of hearts. So I have top pair, top kicker here and go for the small bet. I make it 600, the straddle calls and the low Jack also calls. So now 3480 in this pot, we're still three ways heading to a turn, which is the six of spades creating a backdoor spade draw. So now ACE 10, four, six with two hearts and two spades. And I think I should be betting small here again. I end up checking though, which I don't like, but uh, my reason for it in the moment is that the straddle can be very strong here. I think he can certainly have a hand like pocket tens, pocket fours, or ace 10 suited and out of position against two opponents. This is just a really tricky spot that is going to be made even tougher by whatever happens on the river, because there are two flush draws out there that I can't really account for. And I'm already thinking, depending on how this goes down, I might have to play, you know, a $19,000 pot or something with top pair here. And that's just pretty difficult to do. So I don't love it, but I do check the straddle checks, which I am happy to see. And the low Jack ends up betting 1400, which is about the bet size I should have chosen anyway. So don't mind seeing that I make the call and the straddle also calls. So now there's 7680 in the pot and the river is an offsuit queen. So I check and now the straddle leads for $2,000. The low Jack now folds, which I'm happy to see, but I'm not too thrilled about this $2,000 bet from the straddle. So I think it makes a lot of sense for him to have ace queen here. Something like King Jack of hearts is also a possibility. And I think it also still is possible for this particular guy to have something like pocket fours or pocket tens that he's slow played. Um, 
Not sure how likely this is, but I can't rule that out at all from this guy. So I start talking to him and he says this catchphrase that he had said in a previous hand where he had bluffed another pro in a really big pot by betting $5,000 into 6,000 or something like that. He says this catchphrase and uh, the way he says it feels different to me. And also the situation feels different because he's betting so small and I just don't get the sense that he's bluffing. So even though hearts is bricked and it's possible he's just bluffing with some sort of missed hearts, it just doesn't feel like a bluff to me. So even though I'm getting a really good price, uh, 2000 to win something like 12,000, I mean, I just don't think this is a bluff very often. And I do make the fold. He ends up telling me later that he had pocket queens, which seems on the surface to be somewhat implausible, but he ends up just sort of spontaneously walking through his logic for why he played the hand this way. And I think I believe him. So yeah, if that's the case, I mean, yeah, he just made a set on the river, which is um, unfortunate. And I do like my fold on the river. Uh, I'm just not in love with the way I played the turn. So in this last big hand of the day, a fun player makes it $75 from middle position. There are two calls and I re-raise to $475 from the straddle with, again, ace-king offsuit. The fun player calls and one of the callers, uh, Spanish pro on the button makes the call as well. So three ways here in a three bet pot, there's 1525 in the pot and the flop comes Jack 10, five rainbow. Again, I've got ace king offsuit. Again, I'm out of position here this time against two players. This is a pretty annoying spot. Uh, don't love C betting here, but I also don't love just checking and giving up, uh, given that I do have outs to the nuts here, since a queen can give me the Broadway straight. I also don't think that the Spanish pros range interacts with this board very well. This guy's paying attention. He knows how many hands the fun player is playing. And I think would certainly three bet the fun player if the Spanish pro had jacks or tens. So the pro can have pocket fives, he can have jack 10 suited, but I think in general, most of his range doesn't interact with this board all that well. The fun player can have some strong hands on this board, but just has tons of other stuff as well. And so because of all that, I think I like betting. So I make it $600 into 1525 with my ace king on jack 10 five. The fun player now raises to $1,200. So just a min raise and the Spanish pro folds. So now it's back on me and I don't love calling $1,200 on the flop with nothing but overs and a gut shot, but I think I kind of have to. First of all, the price I'm getting is incredibly good, 600 to win 3,900. And also the fun player has about $5,000 behind. There's just a lot more to win. And also this player is just so wild that I think if I had an ace, it's probably good. I think a king is probably also good. And I think it's not totally beyond the realm of comprehension that I could just have the best hand with ace king and get to check it down on the turn and river. I'm not betting on that, but I think that's, that's one potential outcome. So I think I do have to make the call here. 
So I do. And so there's 39.25 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit queen. So bingo, I get there. I have the nuts, ace king on jack 10, five queen. I'm pretty psyched about it. I check and my opponent jams for about $5,000. Obviously snap call, turn over my cards immediately. We run two rivers. They don't change anything. And I scoop a pot of about $14,000. So get really lucky there to hit that queen, but end up erasing all my losses from earlier in the session and end the session up about $5,300. So a swing of almost $11,000 from my lowest point. You love to see it. And I'm also just really happy about the way I played. I like my bluff with the ace 10 of clubs on the flush draw board. It's unfortunate that it didn't work out. And uh, also unfortunate that that uh, passive thinking player who I talked a lot about has now owned me in a couple big pots, but I'm glad I went for it. And other than missing that turn bet with the ace king on ace 10, four, six, I think I played really well and I think I mixed it up and was not playing this Tim Duncan style, was playing something with a little bit more flash and a little bit more excitement. And like I said, me switching it up a little bit has not had a profound effect on my win rate yet, but given the choice between making X dollars per hour and playing slow, boring poker and making X dollars per hour and playing exciting poker, it's probably better to play more exciting poker, all things being equal. listening to third man walking you can find me on twitter at third walking or via email at third man walking podcast at gmail.com